The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We ran a little late on the break, so please come on back. <laughs> come back. <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh Let's at least intend to come back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, so we're coming back. We're making our way back. Okay, so I'd like to offer a few reflections on working with right intention in daily life, mostly. And first of all, I'd just like to touch again on a point that that Meg made about how this factor fits into the Eightfold Path. Rebecca's question in the beginning, like, oh, you know, we're done with right view and now we're moving on, and... and, uh, you could have the understanding that we have to perfect right view and then perfect right intention and march along like that. And it's really not like that. It's very synergistic and all the factors feed into each other. So a lot of us came here and we started with meditation. But if you look at it, you could see, well, I already had the right view and the right intention to do that, you know. So so you're, we're always starting in the middle. It's the middle way here, you know. And this path goes on and on and it, it refle- all the aspects reflect and, and reinforce each other. There's a wonderful quote from one of the suttas that talks about uh, how three qualities, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness run and circle around right intention. You know, right view shows us what's wholesome and not wholesome. Right effort is to try to abandon what's not wholesome and take up what is wholesome. And you can't do any of this without mindfulness, right? If you're not paying attention, you don't know what you're doing. And of course, your right intention to be mindful is what helps you be mindful. So you can see how all these work together and reinforce each other ongoing. So, um, so investigating intentions, we need to be able to kind of notice what our intentions are, right? So Gill has a beautiful phrase. He talks about view being cognitive, kind of what we believe and what we think. And you can look at intention as, in a way, an attitude of the heart. I love this phrase, attitude of the heart. So it's not intention in the sense that we might say in English, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, or your new list, your new years, I'm going to exercise and diet, and so forth. It's really, at, in the moment, what is moving you and what is motivating you? Where is your heart right now as you step into doing things? So I like to look at the question, um, where am I coming from? Because that also refers back to the body, as Meg said, that's the key practice. And I can almost feel, you know, when I'm coming from being carried away by some kind of tension, I'm coming from up here somewhere. And when I'm really settled and able to be aware of where I'm coming from, I might be more grounded, you know. So where are you coming from both metaphysically and almost literally as you're acting and speaking in the world and then we wind up just sitting sometimes if you can you know just 
take a moment to sit with that. See if you can find the felt sense of where you're coming from. Hold it quietly. Let it unpack itself and reveal its complexity, its layers, all the mixed motives that are always going on in our minds. And you might be able to see what views, what beliefs, you know, what piece of wisdom, what piece of delusion, what emotions, what bodily energy, what's at play in the moment in what you're doing. You might notice, are you acting out of urgency, a sense of, ah, I have to do something here, or resistance, you know, oh, I don't want to. You might feel, you know, are you, are you, are you feeling settled enough that you can really consider? You know, are you looking at a fairly clear, settled glass of water when you ask yourself, what is your intention in the moment, or is it so muddy that you have no idea? So just seeing these things. And I would say that not to be afraid to see that there are a lot of layers of maybe not so skillful and not so virtuous intentions mixed in there. Because we all have these old protective habits, you know, of never... Something in the mind wants you never to do anything again that ever caused or might possibly cause any, you know, ripple anywhere. And it can be very cruel and mean in insisting that you don't do that. So those motives are always mixed in. We have a wonderful teacher, a monk named uh, Ajahn, well, Ajahn Tanisaro. We sometimes call him Ajahn Jeff. He comes here once a year. And he has this wonderful thing where he talks about the committee in the mind. And it's so helpful, you know, sometimes it's like the seven dwarfs, you know, sleepy, <laughs> sleepy and grumpy, <laughs> you know, what, where are you getting the input from in the moment in your mind? And it's so helpful to realize that it is a committee, you know, and what we're working on here is gradually learning to be kind of the chair of the committee and a little bit wiser about who, what we listen to and what we don't, so that we can acknowledge these not so helpful old protective threads without falling into self-hatred and self-judgment which is really just more based in unwise view and unwise intention acting that out so there's also a, a, a sutta which the Buddha gave teachings of the Buddha to his son I don't know how familiar you are with the Buddha's life but he had a son from his marriage before he became the Buddha and the son Uh, became a monk and some of the very profound teachings that he gave to his son and one of them it's kind of about action but of course it certainly applies to intention he's telling his son that you have to notice before you do something is it wholesome or not wholesome while you're doing it how is this turning out is this playing out to be wholesome or unwholesome and then afterwards you can reflect on the effects of how it turned out and perhaps learn something whether it turned out well or not So this might sound a little challenging, and for me, especially the before part, you know, I I specialized in after for many years, of (laughs) noticing what I did and what I should have done and might have done, and, you know, gradually it works its way back, and you wake up during, maybe, and you can change course a little bit, and then you begin to wake up before, and you begin to really appreciate that. And this, again, it turns into a motive for practice, that as we calm down and strengthen our mindfulness, we have more of a chance of being there before. So coming back to right view, where suffering is the basis of right view, it's really helpful to let stress and suffering be your mindfulness bell, the bell that wakes you up either in the middle of an action or say you notice when you're, if you're worried and anxious about some upcoming interaction... Letting that worry and anxiety arouse your recollection of right intention. That what really matters going into that action is what's your intention. 
you know. So we spend so much time focused on how to manipulate the situation to make it come out just the way we want. So can we remember to give more and more time to what is our intention going into that situation? I've really transformed my relationship to a board of directors situation that I'm involved in where I I used to not do this. I'd go there thinking, well, they have to do this and they have to do that, and that was all that was in my mind, and I would get quite crabby in the course of the board meeting and start speaking sharply about why don't you do this and you know it's been probably what 10 years that I've been involved with this board and I've been very slowly really getting to where I actually spend some time before the meeting setting my intention you know to that I have my input and they have their input and what happens happens and what matters is that I'm kind and constructive and that's just transformed it into a very pleasant experience and things happen as they happen. So if it isn't going well, maybe you can wake up in the middle. And if, you, if, you're not able to, uh, if you're not able to change course, you know, you can make a note to reflect on this later. <laughs> Why isn't this going so well, you know? I've, I had a conversation with someone recently where I, I've been wanting this person to see things my way for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I noticed that I'd once again gone into the conversation with yet a new kind of way to present my point of view that might convince them. And it was, again, not going so well. <laughs> and I, this time I really realized in the middle that I could shift my intention to more of the wise listening that Gil was talking about this morning. So I, I really stopped. I mean, we were eating, so I had a chance to, you know, chew a little bit, literally chew on it a minute, and think what what's happening here, and realize that I could shift my intention to that active understanding where let me really what I really need to convey to her is that I have heard where she's coming from and that I, I did and I, I thought this isn't just going to work but it just completely transformed the energy of the conversation for the second half of the whole event it was really uh, really really different and we wound up uh, just in a much better place than we've ever been so as for reflecting afterwards it's very important that we relate to ourselves with the same kindness and compassion and understanding that we're cultivating here. So the purpose of reflecting on our mistakes is not to stir up guilt and a sense that, you know, we are so bad. That flies right in the face of wisdom, which is that we have limited control over what we do. We're very conditioned by past events. We can intend, but intention may take its own time to work its way out. And so you're looking at it just as impersonally as you can for what can I learn from this? You know, what factors went into this that made it unpleasant and how can, how can I intend more wisely in the future? And it's also important that you take time to notice, as we just were in our groups, times that the effect of good intentions. You know, I'm so grateful for so many times I haven't said something or so many times that I've really taken the time before going into something to set my intention. There's a story I like that illustrates what a great protection wise intention is. So the Dalai Lama was talking to a group of people and suddenly, I guess, people started criticizing him for hanging out with too many Hollywood types and raising money and, you know, getting to be too famous and all that. And he sat there for a minute and he thought and he said, well, my intention was good. And you could just see that, okay, he looked, you know, what he looked at was his intention and he felt that his intention was good and that that was a great protection for him from falling into, uh, you know, that level of squabbling about what is and isn't a skillful tactic in that case. 
So let's look a little more at each of the three kinds of wise intentions. First of all, renunciation. Now that's a big word <laughs> that has, you know, kind of funny associations for us. Has an association of nobly pushing away and whatnot. It's it's also we usually translate it as letting go, letting be. The word literally nikkama. There's kama like in the Kama Sutra, the Kama Sutta, you know that that famous sex manual book, and so it's really talking about that kind of lust and passion, that that lustful passion for things, and we can see it maybe most easily as a kind of the things we're addicted to, you know, or the ways in which we're really looking for temporary sensual pleasures to get us through life, you know, counting on sense pleasures to do it for us in some important way. So um, we can look at... It also, it also points to the second noble truth, that suffering is caused by that craving and clinging. And there are many, many places in the suttas where the path to liberation is summarized in one phrase as non-clinging. You know, so you can really look at this uh, as non-clinging. But, of course, to begin with, one of the understandings of this path is that we have to look at what's difficult. We, have, we can't just, if we're always looking out there at how nice it's going to be, you know, then we're not really addressing what's happening right now. And what's happening right now is often a lot of, you know, mildly to strongly addictive behavior and, uh, and need to have these things. So, just a few observations on working with what's revealed when we turn to look at this practice of renunciation. A lot of what's revealed is our anxiety over control of pleasant and unpleasant, right? We need to be able to control a steady little drip of pleasant to ourselves. And some of that, so there's two ways that we can work with that. We can work with finding through meditation and through acting on wise intention that there are other less harmful, more skillful ways of achieving different kind, levels of pleasantness. And then we can also look at, you know, what, what it's like to be in the grip of this unskillful understanding. So I found for myself that we're often dealing, it often brings up a kind of false duality in our psychology between the authorities who say, you should be good, and something, some kind of rebel energy in us that, no, we want our pleasant. And so I would really ask you to look at are you falling into that kind of duality you know notice who who in your mind is someone wagging a finger at you in your mind and are you rebelling against that so what we're really looking at is cultivating our own wisdom and taking ownership of our own karma in the sense that it's us that we're hurting if we pursue this path or at least we're finding a kind of sub settling for a kind of suboptimal kind of happiness so how much can you really can you really see for yourself what is what this is leading to and what the experience of going through it is like? I've learned so much in working with things like food and sleep that are my main two addictions. I've really noticed it's not so much about, at first, whether you do or don't, but can you kind of keep the light on and be interested in the process, you know? So you don't have to start out by telling yourself, I'm never going to eat that again. But really watch and see if you notice, oh, you know, it's such a brief little pleasure. It's over, you know. I, I worked for a long time with telling myself, well, pretend you just ate the cookie. Now what do you want, you know? This cookie will be over in one second. What do you want? You know, well, another one. And, I, you know, I could so clearly see that there's no end to it, you know. 
And so this helped me kind of take responsibility for what I'm really doing and see that, you know, what... And then feeling my way into what is it that's hungry in me. And it's hungry for something much deeper than a little bit of sugar. So you can really explore that. And then at some point you may also discover the power of simply acting. You know, one time of actually resisting it and surviving it is then an example in your, mist- in your memory that it's survivable. You know, it chips away at that implied belief that I have to always do what I want. No, you don't. And it's empowering and strengthening to be bigger than those addictions. So then there's this understanding of different kinds of happiness, right? So in a way, uh, I love a teaching from the teacher Mark Coleman who talks about you're always renouncing something. You don't like the word renunciation. Well, you're renouncing freedom for a cookie, you know, or whatever your thing is. So, you know, you can look at what you're what you're uh, renouncing. There's a wonderful quote in a book I've been enjoying recently um, called Cultivating Inner Peace. And he, where he talks about this as uh, selectivity, a, 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 an aspect of cultivating inner peace. Inner peace is cultivated by the act of choosing. If you want to live peacefully, you'll have to make a continuous series of selections that permit and confirm that need. Selectivity is another word for intentionality, a life in which every action points in the same direction. And then he has a wonderful little story from a Maine a canoe builder. He says, boat building is a form of concentration. Each one of these canoes springs out of me, my hands, more importantly, my mind, my absence of distracting thoughts. I don't work with a radio on. It's me and the cedar. I don't feel like I've given up anything, really. What other people call pleasure, to me, is a dilution. The only things I gave up were all those things that keep me from living in beauty. So, that's a, a way to reflect on the, inner, the deeper meaning of renunciation. So, I'm way over time here. So, uh, on goodwill and kindness... What we're working with there, uh, the opposite often comes from anger. We could look at anger versus goodwill. Um, It's one area where it's really easy to see that the unwholesome intention itself leads to self-harm because there's so much tension and inner uh, chemistry involved in maintaining a state of anger. And kindness to yourself is really fundamental. It can be another false duality. We can think we have to be angry or else we're a doormat to the world, right? So there's a wonderful passage. Sharon Salzberg uh, has a book called The Force of Kindness. And she's talking about finding a theme or a thread in our lives that really we might care about more than anything else that could, has the potential to become the meaning of our life. And she says to explore kindness as that thread of meaning requires finding out if we can be strong and still be kind, be smart and still be kind, whether we can be profoundly kind to ourselves and at the same time strongly dedicated to kindness for those around us. We have, the, we have to find the power in kindness, the confidence in kindness, the release in kindness, the type of kindness that transcends belief systems, allegiances, ideologies, cliques, and tribes. This is the trait that can transform our lives. So, um, Bhante Gunaratana 
when we turn to kindness to others, once we have to really see what it means to be kind to ourselves. You know, we have to allow ourselves to be kind to ourselves. And out of that, when we understand how much that's what we want and how transforming that is for ourselves, then we can use our imagination to see this is what anyone wants, even someone who's acting in a way that makes us angry. They're acting out of suffering. They're acting out in a way that's hurting them. And, you know, just as we want to be happy, they want to be happy. And another way to work with uh, cultivating kindness is the power of the Sangha. So being around people who are all practicing with this intention. You know, you see it mirrored, you see it reflected, you see what it's like to receive kindness from people. You know, you really look at how much you want to participate in some aspects of our culture that seem to be based around harshness and cruelty, internet, talk radio sort of culture that we that you can just let that go and devote your time to being around people who practice kindness and compassion. So when we come to compassion, it can be hard to see cruelty. You know, wow, we're not cruel. And we aren't for the most part. We're very nice people. But often cruelty comes out in little ways, you know, ironically, maybe with those that we're most intimately close to, that we know the best, you know. You, you and your partner may really know how to push each other's buttons. And, and, you know, and you don't know anybody as well as you know yourself. And there are parts of the mind that really know what hurts you. And they... They flare up and, you know, so listen to how you talk to yourself and consider little small ways. Cruelty is a big word, but it can just mean that little zinger, you know, that little wish to hurt. And what does that come out of? So um, we worked with a wonderful man whose name is suddenly escaping me, who works at San Quentin with prisoners. He's come here and talked a few times. Jacques Verdun, right. And his, one of the sayings that I learned from him that he teaches the prisoners is that hurt people hurt people, right? So uh, the first thing we're learning to do is really to be more able to be with our own tender spots and our own hurts when we're working with compassion and not that, not that, inten- that tendency to lash out. And so again, we're circling around mindfulness and wisdom and right effort. We're learning to re-inhabit our bodies and experience a deeper confidence in this ground that with this grounded presence, this grounded sense of being able to be in our bodies that we can open to the experiences more and more in our past of loss, experiences of imperfection, the inevitable imperfection of the world, without being so triggered and needing to lash out defensively. And then we can also reflect on what it means to offer compassion. We often think, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is that we have to fix something or we have to help or we have to do something, you know. But it's very interesting to look at other ways of understanding compassion as simply being able to be there, being a fellow human being that goes through this. Someone who's suffering a lot of, in a difficult situation, one of the most painful parts of it is the isolation, you know, that buying into the sense that I should have been able to do something about this, that this is my fault, that I'm somehow now less than human because these difficult things have happened to me. I met a woman a while back who's lost two of her children. And, you know, she grew up in a culture where, you know, you were supposed to be able to avoid that by being the right sort of person. <laughs> and a lot of her suffering was around how can, you know, no one was helping her hold that this is a normal part of life. So there are a lot of ways to be compassionate. Um, 
you know, we've learned a lot from the hospice movement in terms of end-of-life care that's focused up to the very last moment around high technological ways of fixing everything versus a more graceful just being with being with the naturalness of loss and illness and death. <laughs> Way over time. So, um, <laughs> okay, so besides... Um, well, I want you to have a chance to explore some of this yourselves. So besides these are underlying, you could say, these three uh, wise intentions, there's a fundamental shift in our intentionality that comes out of this deepening wisdom, and that's the intention to turn toward the practice and the path, any of the eight factors, anything that comes to mind, as your first move when you're wondering what to do and how to approach a situation, how to cope with something that isn't going well or hasn't gone well. So this very often involves the intention to pause, the intention to listen, the intention to try to see more clearly, hear and feel more deeply what's going on, and let wise intention take a while to form. You know, let it be informed by deeper seeing of what's going on. And as we see how hard this is to do, then that's our motivation for working with mindfulness and deepening concentration. Meg was just reminding me that she meant to say that deeper concentration makes our intention have much more power. You know, so the more the more we practice, the more we settle, the more it's a clear kind of a clear pond that we're looking at when we're seeing our intention, the more effect it has. And it can be quite striking how much making a clear intention really it, then that's what arises when the when the moment happens. So um, hopefully this circle, the circle of wisdom and mindfulness and wise effort that we'll be studying throughout this year, I hope it circles around and keeps circling and spiraling for you and gives wise rise to wise intention. Thank you. So... Yeah. So we'd like to try something a little different for the second breakout session. It's something that Gill's had us do in a lot of small groups. And um, we'd like you just to get in groups of two. So I'm going to tell you what we're going to do first so that some of you can maybe go out there so we can spread out a little bit, okay? So we're going to get in groups of two and we're going to do what's called a repeating question. And the way this works is that one person is the questioner and one person is the responder. And the questioner asks the question and then the responder responds. Just in a one sentence, simple response, not the whole story, just one thing. And then the questioner says, and this might be the most important part, the questioner says, thank you. And then repeats the question. And then you give the next response that comes up. And the questioner says, thank you, and repeats the question. Okay? So what this allows you to do is that you say the first few things that come to your mind, the first few rounds, and then as it goes on, you, you feel a little deeper. You might need maybe something that you hadn't realized comes to mind about it. Okay? And so it's a way of just letting... Oops. It's, kind, it's sort of like you might do on your own with mindfulness, letting the question settle in, settle in, settle in, and see what comes up. And um, 
there's no the role of the questioner is simply to remind you of the question over and over again no commenting no suggestions just mindful listening okay and then we'll switch roles we'll have about 5 minutes each to do this and then we'll switch roles okay so it's okay to have a moment you know you can take some silent time and let something come up you know from your heart and uh we'll see what happens okay so the question will be what gets in the way of your intention to be compassionate what gets in the way of your intention to be compassionate so you might want to write that down just so you kind of have it to read from And this could be, you know, toward yourself, toward others, toward any, you know, whatever comes to mind for you. What gets in the way of your intention to be compassionate? Okay, so let's get in pairs and spread out. And I will ring a bell when we're going to start. And then I'll ring a bell after, I don't know, four or five minutes. Maybe we're running a little short. We'll make it maybe four minutes a piece. Okay, and then we'll switch and then we'll come back together share what that was like. And uh, one more thing to say. This is for you. You're not really trying to communicate it or explain it to the questioner. The questioner is there as a silent witness to your internal process. So you're trying to discover things for yourself. Okay. Well, I'm interested in two things. What came out of that and how was that for you as an exercise? (laughs) I just want to say that, uh, you know, the reason for looking at these things is to bring them, to raise them in consciousness so that, you know, not, not again, not to stir up self-criticism or self-doubt, but just to be aware of, well, what happens, you know? Because the more we're aware of what, what kinds of things carry us away, having said it out loud is kind of powerful. You might notice it next time when it's coming up, when it's, when it's arising. So... That's the reason for looking at, you know, what's in the way of some of these things. So we don't, you know. Anyway, so how was that? How was that as an exercise? Yes, let, let me. I've got mics here. I found it. Maybe that's not on. It needs to have a light on. I found it to be quite different than self-reflection in that the answers that I may have come up with were very different than if I had thought about the question once and continued talking about it on my own for 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think in that case, um, I will follow one train of thought or one theme all the way down, and by pausing, it really had me reflect on um, different themes. Uh Thank you. Thank you. So maybe not as deep, but maybe broader or something? Or, yeah. Uh, we did something like this in the, um, uh, another class that I'm in here. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and uh, it was a few weeks ago. And uh, that time it was very hard. I felt like really pushed. This time I felt, wow, this is great. Because someone else is... is um, asking again and again. Now I can just focus. I felt uh, 
Maybe it's a little like in the old days when people threw the I Ching. Sometimes if you did it with your friend, your friend would look up the things to read, and you'd stay focused on your problem, and the person would read it aloud to you. So you felt kind of like you could really focus. I felt that way. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank yeah. you. Surprisingly light and humorous. Oh, great. Good. Excellent way to see these difficulties. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised by how many different things came up each time but for each of us. And when I thought we were going to ask, that when she was going to ask me the same question, I thought, oh, I'll just copy what she said. But it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. <laughs> yeah. Behind you. I think adding the thank you at the end stops the self-criticism. Uh-huh. It was very, very important, and it allowed me to keep going on and peeling the onion and getting deeper and deeper. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, Arthur, has something? Um, so um, I've done this before, um, um, but, um, and I like it. Um, I enjoyed it today. Um, but I found myself, much to my surprise, uh, somewhere I didn't expect to be. That uh, made me very uncomfortable. Um, and I was aware of how uncomfortable I was. And it's given me something to look at, too. Well, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Behind you. I agree with what um, a lot of people here have said that uh, it was so broad. <laughs> it felt like if he, he had asked it again and again and again for another 10 minutes, I could have come up with so much more. There's just so much that gets in the way. A lot of it, it thematically might be oriented around the self. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. things I'm afraid, self-preservation, protection, fear. So it just it's i didn't find it light i found it uncomfortable or difficult it's kind of painful to look mm-hmm. at all that but i do believe that now it's much more conscious and mm-hmm. i think it'll be helpful and hopefully even with two of you only two of you you've got a sense that these these are universal you know a, a lot of shared themes i'm sure came up in what gets in the way so we can you know we can notice them with compassion we always keep coming back to practicing doing our practice in a way that manifests these intentions. You know, so your intention, your first intention can be to yourself, am I practicing with kindness and compassion? And with wisdom, because wisdom is understanding that this is how it is. You know, this is how it is with everybody. And you can apply this understanding to yourself, and then you can reflect, gee, look at what gets in the way of my compassion. Maybe that's why they're not so compassionate. They have the same stuff going on, right? So it can uh, it can be very, very helpful. Are there any more? We can just open it up to any more uh, questions or comments about uh, intention or view and intention or how how things fit. Or you can say more about this exercise. Whatever's we've got a few minutes here for whatever's on your mind. Yeah. Um, well. I'm trying to think how to articulate this, but, I, you know, I, Gil said something in his recorded talk about you can only sort of have one intention at a time, so, you know, 
loving kindness kind of dislodges ill will, you know. And but of course that just leads right into like happy talk, right, and suppression. And um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, right? Like, because yeah. you know, in real life, all sorts of things arise, not just good things, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. You want to speak to that, or shall I? Okay. That's true. Um, no, I, I mean, there's a very narrow understanding of intention, which, you know, it, when you really get down into the Buddhist psychology, the factor of intention is operating moment by moment, you know. So perhaps technically there's exactly one thing that is kind of out of the committee that's kind of won the race in each second and moves you on to the next thing, you know. So in that sense, there's only one intention. But we're certainly always, you know, dealing at the level that we're usually able to be mindful of. We're dealing with this or that or the other thing. And so it can certainly seem like there's a lot of, uh, you know, competing motivations going on in the moment. And it can, if you can really cultivate a way in that attitude of the heart understanding, not such a precise one moment at a time even, but that if you can have the attitude in the heart of kindness it does in a way temporarily dislodge the attitude of ill will so in that way you can see that you know in general maybe there's one or the other are more or less happening at the moment although you know the potential for the others to arise is still there is that getting at your question No, no, right. no. Right. So, I just think there's sort of intent. There's a tension there between um, attention of intending. Well, you know, it's interesting to explore. I, maybe I'm understanding your question as meaning to simply it, is it sometimes unwise to intend to be kind? You know, and and we can. I think that might come to under that understanding that I was trying to get at in my talk that I might have kind of rushed over. Of how are we understanding? Are we understanding this as meaning I simply have to let someone else's unwise intentions run right over me? No, you know. So kindness is one form of wise intention. You know, wisdom, wisdom, and equanimity. All those things work together so that we can be wisely kind. It might be the kindest thing to say, you know, I really can't continue this conversation right now and leave, you know. But there's a way to say that out of motivation of kindness for yourself. There's all kinds of strong actions can be motivated by wisdom, some combination of wisdom and compassion and kindness that's appropriate to the situation. So we're not looking at happy talk. It's not. It's really finding what's really, you know... What's really the right combination of stuff to do right now? And where is it coming from? Thank you. On a sort of similar theme, we spoke about kind of the should of compassion and sometimes the caregiver burnout compassion that you feel like you're, you should be compassionate and kind, but... You don't always have that ability because you're burnt out. Or in my job, I have to be compassionate to a certain extent and kind, but it's very difficult sometimes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something that I meant to read in my talk that I, I think this is, a, I'll just come back to as a little response to your question. We had a wonderful reading in our uh, another group that we're doing 
It's a piece by Rachel Naomi Raymond called In the Service of Life. And she's talking about, and of course she's just using these words to make a point, but she's talking about potentially you could understand a subtle difference in in uh, intention between the intention to fix or help and what she's calling the intention to serve. And she says, uh, with help I'm very aware of my own strength, but we don't serve with our strength, we serve with ourselves. She's We draw from all of our experiences. Our limitations can serve. Our wounds can serve. Even our darkness can serve. The wholeness in us serves the wholeness in others and the wholeness in life. The wholeness in you is the same as the wholeness in me. Service is a relationship between equals. We are servers of the wholeness and mystery in life. Over time, fixing and helping are draining and depleting. Over time, we burn out. Service is renewing. When we serve, our work itself will sustain us. When you serve, you see life as a whole. From the perspective of service, we are all connected. All suffering is like my suffering, and all joy is like my joy. The impulse to serve emerges naturally and inevitably from this way of seeing. So that's something to just reflect on. It's not, a, it's not meant to be a glib answer to this extremely good question. You know, but just looking at, at how we're doing what we're doing, what unrealistic expectations and ideals might we be holding. You know, you can be holding on to the idea that you ought to be able to fix and help and fix every situation. You know, so again, coming back to the refuge in your good intention and the wisdom of the inevitability of imperfection and things just not working out. You know, and balancing, balancing care for yourself with care for other people. There is, I don't know if this was appropriate. I read it a little bit fast. It's a longer piece than that. But it's kind of a reflection on what attitudes we're bringing to um, our work, our intention of compassion, and how, to, how we can you know, try to hold it in a way that doesn't completely wear us out. Yeah. Maybe I'll just add to that, um, that with all of these path factors, um, we're often called upon to bring wisdom to uh, how we practice them. And sometimes uh, this means the right view of knowing what the situation calls for. And, and there are times when burnout is, is what's happening. And so then, you know, that's, that's where we have to bring our wisdom to bear, to know, you know, what to do with those shoulds. Well, let's just sit for a few minutes and let the energy settle a little bit before we go. So we'll sit for about five minutes. Maybe you can connect with something you heard today that's inspiring to you. We just reviewed everything that's in the way, so let's review something that's positive and inspiring and opens your heart a little bit. And then just sit with what's there. Whatever's there, it's okay.
maybe we can close with a little bit of metta practice. So with the understanding that the Buddha said that nowhere that he looked did he find anyone more deserving of kindness than himself, than ourselves, meaning each of us. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be healthy and strong. May I be at ease with the conditions of my life. Just as we want to be happy, all of us here today want to be happy. May we all be safe from inner and outer harm and ill will. be happy and peaceful. May we all be healthy and strong. May we all be at ease with the conditions of our lives. opening our hearts as wide as we can to all beings. May all beings be safe from harm, free from ill will. May all beings be truly happy and peaceful. all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be at ease with the conditions of their lives.
Thank you all. I hope you have a interesting month working with right intention. Yes. Okay, yeah, if yes, of course you'll have those of you who are in the mentoring program will have that and and you're also yes, it's great to talk to somebody else. Did you get we had I sent out the mail with the list of people who were wanting to be contacted. Um you can contact if you know if the two of you wanted to stay in touch or you can meet somebody new, you know, we're not we're not asking that you stay with the same person all year, but if it's mutually working for you, you can do whatever was working for you. And you can still sign up for that mailing list if you didn't already. Um, I'll refresh it occasionally. So you might keep both the email to sign up for it and the email of where it is and download it occasionally. It might have some new names on it. So, Okay, Mick? Yeah, it's in the regular place. We're, we're doing it, you know, because we love to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything here, everything at the center is offered on a donation basis, and there are donation boxes by the door, one for the teachers and one for the center. So, thank you. <laughs>